All right, uh, Matthew chapter 5 and Luke chapter 24 are our texts today. Uh, this is a series of sermons that's fairly new to us from the four gospel accounts that we started a couple weeks ago, and uh, Pastor Kim continued with us last week. And we're talking about questions of discipleship, being a disciple of Jesus, uh, making disciples of Jesus, and really the local church's role in all that um, as well. And our reason for taking this journey through some of the key gospel accounts is so that uh, you and I, we can have a shared experience uh, through these gospel accounts, hearing Jesus, hearing from Jesus ourselves together, uh, not making assumptions, basically being able to talk about it, um, um, talk about what we heard, conversate about it afterwards, um, and enter this gospel narrative together. Um, we don't want to get into guesswork. We don't want to get into theorizing. We just want to hear from Jesus. We want to hear his words and we want to hear his words together. And so today we're going to address two scripture passages. Um, like two weeks ago, each of these passages book in Jesus's life and ministry in the world, um, going from Matthew 5 all the way to Luke chapter 24. And uh, today's first scripture passage will actually address what Jesus calls the kingdom of God. Um, if you're not familiar with the Bible, familiar with church, the kingdom of God is what is considered the reign and rule of God that was delivered to, given to Jesus to run. And Jesus is the king of this kingdom of God. I can say a lot more about the kingdom of God, and I'm not going to today, um, except for just a few passing comments. Just know that as we continue to move through this series of narratives through the gospel accounts, we're going to be hitting on the, the kingdom of God quite a bit and hear about what it has to say to us about being disciples uh, of Jesus, because it's a pretty important theme throughout the, the scriptures about us being citizens of his kingdom, um, citizens of his kingdom that subordinate all other domains or all other kingdoms under which we might be living. Uh, that can include um, the, the domain of our work. That can be the domain of uh, other areas in which we answer to people. It could be the domain of government, uh, this technical kingdom we call America. Uh, whatever it is, they all subordinate to the kingdom uh, of God. In fact, uh, if I could just make an aside, that's going to become increasingly important for us to read through this this spring and just think about what that means in terms of implications for the political season we enter, because it does have implications for the way in which we engage in the public domain, the public sphere, as people who might belong to either party, but regardless of party affiliation, knowing that we have an affiliation in our King Jesus and his kingdom that subordinates all those other uh, kingdoms. All right, most of what we'll read about um, the kingdom of God in future passages will speak to how kingdom citizens, uh, which is just another way of saying Christians uh, or disciples of Jesus, kingdom citizens, how they live or act out their gospel faith uh, in all areas of life. However, the subject of today's text is the human heart um, or the spirit and its nature and character when one pursues disciple with, with discipleship with Jesus. And so just so that we're clear, and you didn't miss what I just said, most of what we're going to read about in future passages is going to deal with how we interact both with the world and with one another uh, as kingdom citizens together, uh, those who are trusters in Jesus. 
but today, the kingdom of God emphasis is on how the kingdom of God actually transforms and changes us from within. Like what a kingdom citizen looks like from the inside of who they are, the core of their character. And so let's go ahead and start in chapter 5, verse 1. It says this, seeing the crowds, and there were crowds that followed Jesus uh, from the earliest days of his ministry, seeing the crowds, Jesus went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth, and he taught them. And so this is the beginning of what we call the Sermon on the Mount. This is the first a proclamation or message that Jesus ever gave. And so those of you who are maybe unfamiliar with the Bible, unfamiliar with uh, church, or unfamiliar with the scriptures, here's the good news. Um, many of the people who are hearing this were probably unfamiliar with the kind of things that Jesus was going to teach to them. And so we all kind of sit as uh, novices at the feet of Jesus. And so he's about to teach them. And this first portion, these first few verses... The Bible, uh, most of our uh, headlines call them the Beatitudes, the Beatitudes. And so that's the section we're going to be limiting ourselves to in the Sermon on the Mount, which is much larger. Uh, but, but today, just this section uh, we're going to hit on. And so uh, continuing, it says, uh, He opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Two quick things that need to be said uh, that have implications on the rest of what we're reading. Uh, we're going to see the word blessed spoken several times. And when it says blessed, it's really talking about um, a, f a favor of some sort, like, like a blessed favor or a deep and abiding um, a happiness that really transcends um, our circumstances around us, okay? So we're going to read that over and over. Blessed is this, blessed is this, blessed is this. Um, but, but then there's another phrase, kingdom of heaven. Uh, you just heard me talk about the kingdom of God. I don't want you to get confused. They are actually the same thing. It's just that Matthew and Luke kind of interchange the two, and we see them used um, interchangeably throughout other scriptures. So uh, they just have different emphases, but they're referring to the same thing, Okay. All right, so he says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What that means and what it means by the poor in spirit, the poor in spirit are those, those who know that before God, as they stand before God, whether it's at the end of time, at the judgment of all, or whether it is here today in worship, knowing that God is present with us, us standing before God right now, to be poor in spirit is to stand before God and know that you are spiritually bankrupt. Spiritually bankrupt. Which is, is interesting because where else on planet Earth is bankruptcy ever good for anyone? Where is it ever considered blessed? But yet, that's kind of the counter nature or the upside down nature to the kingdom of God. And to what's being spoken in the Beatitudes and the Sermon on the Mount, a lot of things that are not expected are said by Jesus in these texts. But it is those who are before God, knowing they're spiritually bankrupt, knowing they're unworthy, knowing they are incredibly dependent before him. They are the blessed ones because they receive the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven, it says. 
And I don't know if you know what this is getting at, but the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God being the reign and rule of God with citizens, which are the people of God, is a society. It's really a counter society within society that we live in. And so if, you, if you've kind of thought this through to its logical conclusion, you know that people who are bankrupt and unworthy and really utterly dependent in society, usually most societies, most cultures throughout all time in history have been people without a people. Uh, they, they don't have a place. And what this is telling us, it's saying, ironically, it's the people who know or should other people know that they actually bring nothing to the table outside of what God in them brings to the table? It is ironically those who know that about themselves who are given everything. Who are given, who are given a slice of God's society that he will establish at the end of time, the new heavens and new earth. They are given a slice of it in this life even. And that kingdom of heaven is mostly, not 100%, but almost mostly lived out within the people of God in local churches. And so really, if you want to know what the physical kingdom of God looks like, it looks like the people of God doing the mission of God in local churches all across the world in all times and all places. It's one way to think of it. And it is those people who know that they're bankrupt who are given this place to belong, those who don't really have any credentials to belong anywhere else. So he gives it to us. A people or a citizenry within which we can sit united under our king. And then he continues, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And now he's getting into why, in fact, we're spiritually bankrupt. Because of what we mourn over. What do we mourn over? This is not just any typical mourning. There's actually a reason, a method to why Jesus is mentioning things in the order he's mentioning it. And he's saying we are mourners, but we're mourners of our sin. We're mourners and we're contrite over what we know is not right within us. The things that put us at odds with our heavenly father, with our creator God. And so he's saying it is those that are contrite. It is those that are heartbroken, heartbroken and mournful over their sins. The very things that render us, that make us poor in spirit. It is those who are contrite and heartbroken, mournful over their sins. They are blessed, actually. Again, we would never say this about people in the real world, quote-unquote. But they are the blessed ones because they receive comfort. And the comfort that Jesus has in mind is the comfort of forgiveness. Forgiveness. And you think about this, this actually plays itself out to be true in the real world all the time because no matter what, stage of life I've ever lived in. I've always come across uh, the kind of people who will be very, very honest with me about their thoughts about uh, God and the world and uh, sin and things that we talk about in, uh, in the church sphere. They, 
and, and, and any time the subject of Jesus and, and, and him being a good person comes up, usually there's a lot of, yeah, I agree, he is good. He should, he should be followed. He, he, he's a great example. Uh, but, but you bring up the fact that he's also a savior. He's a forgiver. And what's so interesting is the most honest of people uh, within the larger world will say, well, I don't need a forgiver. Well, that is remarkably consistent, actually. You see, because if you're not mournful, if you're not contrite, if you don't think you have anything to apologize for, you don't have any reason to need a forgiver. You don't have any reason to need a savior. And that's the tragedy of those who mourn and those who are heartbroken, heart sick over their sin. Because I also meet people who are heartbroken, heart sick over their sin and there's something of a contradiction and they know that they're heartbroken, heart sick over it, but, but, but yet Jesus is something of a mystery to them or, or something that they're just not interested in and the very thing that your heart broke over actually has a comfort to it and the comfort comes in Christ. Like, like that is the gospel message. He comes ready to comfort those who stand contrite. And so there are those who are far from God who might feel contrite and might be just working at penance to try and make things right, to, to balance the scales. And he's saying, good news, you don't have to do any of that. What occurred on the cross, or in this case where he's preaching now, what will occur on the cross for him in time will bring you comfort. It will bring you forgiveness that you seek. Verse 5, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. The meek are those that are free. Free from the enslavement of having to always throw your weight around. Said it exactly how I wanted to say it. See, many people think it's freedom to be able to throw your weight around. But it's actually enslavement. Because here's the thing. The more you throw your weight around, the more you are punching way above your weight class. Every single one of us do. But the world encourages us. Culture encourages us to pretend like you could punch a weight class much higher than you can. Throw that weight around. Let people feel the weight of who you are. In the countercultural kingdom, though, he says... It's the meek who inherit the earth. It's not those who throw their, their weight around who inherit all the good, who get all the good, good gifts. It appears that way, doesn't it, though? It does appear that way. I mean, just be honest, it does appear that way. But he's saying, in my kingdom, those who are weak, who know that they are free from having to throw their weight around, it's those that actually God will give lasting things to, meaningful things to, things to steward, things to use for their good and his glory. You don't have to throw your weight around. And so he continues, he says, it is blessed those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Those who hunger and thirst for, for righteousness, they will be satisfied. 
And what he's talking about is those who hunger and thirst for righteousness are those who genuinely desire holiness, to be holy people, to be godly, Christ-like people. The character of Jesus is the singular pursuit. And basically, it's, it's them wanting to harmonize what is true about them, which, if you don't know this, because of the cross, because of what Christ did, anyone who trusts him is immediately, from a theological standpoint, declared righteous. That is a theological truth. They are declared righteous, not because of anything they did, but because of what Jesus did for them. And so, without doing a thing, without lifting a finger, past, present, future, they are declared righteous because of Christ. Nothing you can do, no way to earn it. What he's saying here is not talking about that. He is saying, blessed are those who hunger and thirst to harmonize what has been declared true about them in their righteousness because of Christ, to harmonize that with their own personal ethics of how they think, feel, speak, and act. They want to see them harmonized. Blessed are those who want to harmonize what is already true of them and make it true about them really. As they live and interact in this world. And so they are blessed and they shall be satisfied. What that means is, it means that such people are blessed who have such a desire, a sincere desire. They are literally stuffed and fattened with what they want. Fattened. With the thirst and hunger for righteousness, they are given all they can have. That God will be, he will honor that desire. And then it continues in verse 7. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. In other words, those that have an attitude of, of charity... An attitude of charity, that's another way of saying an attitude of mercy or a disposition of, of attitude generosity. Attitude generosity, that's another good way of saying it. Or maybe saying it in this way, a, a winsome or forgiving spirit about them. Um, this is to have a mercy heart. Such people are blessed or happy because they are able to receive and enjoy the mercy of God. This, this verse isn't teaching that if, if you're merciful to others, he'll be merciful to you. It's not an exchange. It's not that at all. That's not the gospel at all. What it's saying is, is those who have received mercy, that mercy is meant to have an outlet. And it's meant to play itself out in life in mercy and a disposition, an attitude of generosity towards others and charity towards others. And so if you want to think of it like a circle, it's a repeating circle where we're given the initial mercy of Jesus on the cross and we continue to feed it to others and then we in turn receive more of the mercy he has to give for us and in turn we feed others. And what it's describing here 
basically implies that when we break the cycle, we, when I break the cycle, and I start acting like I'm more than I am, and acting less charitable, it is, I am signing my sentence to not enjoy God's mercy like I was meant to. That there's going to be something of God's mercy that I will have not been receiving because I will have not been also sharing it. So it's not an exchange. Only we would break the cycle in this case. And he continues on. He says, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Does this just mean blessed are those who are just super, super moral? Because they're the only ones who see God? Not meaning that at all, actually. When it says pure in heart, it's actually talking about those who are free from being a divided soul. Free from division of soul. I mean, think about what he's saying there. He's saying pure as opposed to mixed up. Like there's not a mix of, of different dyes in the paint. There's a purity to it. It's a singular color. It's an undivided heart. It's not wrecked with contradiction and hypocrisy. It is those who are pure in heart that are singularly minded in their devotion to their king and his kingdom. And they're blessed because this single-mindedness, it actually is incredibly clarifying. It clears the fog that you and I so often will live under and it enables us to clearly see and perceive God in all the ways we can in this life. Now, these, each of these blessings have kind of a, a now fulfillment and an eventual fulfillment at the end of time. The end of time, the fulfillment is simply what it says. We will literally see Jesus face to face. And we will know him and be completely known before him. But it also means we will see God in this world, and that's something we have a harder time kind of grasping a hold of. It feels a little intangible to us. But think about it. The more our singular mindedness in devotion to God and his king and his kingdom, it actually clears the fog so much that we start being able to see, this is what it's implying, we start to be able to see the king and his kingdom far more clearly than we used to. We start seeing it in other people more. We start seeing it in our spiritual community more. We start hearing his voice in our prayers more. When we read the scriptures, we start seeing Jesus leap off the pages of the scriptures in ways we hadn't before. The fog clears. And we literally begin to see God in a way we haven't seen him and experience him in ways we haven't experienced him. We see his character even in nature. What was once a butterfly all of a sudden becomes a spiritual experience of recognizing God in nature. We come to worship and we don't just sing songs by rote. We don't just go through the motions like we are encountering Christ on a weekly basis. We see him, we experience him. 
It is those who are free from the divided self who have such blessings. It's hard. That one is probably one of the most striking ones in America because the good life in America is so, so drawing. It's magnetic. And, and here, just I, I don't want to assume it plays itself out in your life the way it does in mine and those I live life around, but I find us so often just desperately trying to live one life in the kingdom of God, but also we want it all too in this world, in this place. We want all of it too. And it doesn't mean we can't seek career advancement. It doesn't mean we can't seek to do well in our jobs and to be awarded, to receive. It doesn't mean any of that. It just means that our possession and single-minded devotion cannot actually be divided between the two kingdoms. That whatever we do in and don't do in this world. It has to be with the kingdom of God in mind. That's singular mindedness. And then verse 9. Blessed are the peacemakers. For they shall be called sons of God. Real quickly. Um, the peacemakers are those who pursue reconciliation where wherever we might find hostility, division, bitterness, and strife. Wherever it is, we want to pursue reconciliation. This is not appeasement. This is not avoiding conflict and burying our heads in the sand over the tensions that are existing and true in this world, but rather confronting these things with the intention to conquer divisions and show the better way, the way to peace. And the peace that is to be found is found in the gospel and its transformative power for our lives, all that it brings. Not only does this make us blessed becoming um, and because we are acting as God's sons and reflecting his character and way, it says, it says that if you, if you reflect this, you will be sons of God. And so definitely it means we're going to reflect his character. And that way we are basically becoming sons of God. But it means it in one other way. You see, a son was also the emissary of their father. The chief message bearer. Like the father wants to send a message to another household in the ancient near Middle East. He does it through his son. The most treasured messenger. And if we are sons, of uh, sons and daughters of God, if we are peacemakers, those who bring peace where reconciliation is needed, where division and strife exist, that means we are emissaries of the Heavenly Father. In fact, the Bible says this in very plain terms later on where it calls us ministers of reconciliation to the world. Missionaries of the greatest of reconciliations, first between others and God and then between people themselves. Again, political season ahead, we should be those bringing peace and sanity to the discussions. Verse 10, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. 
If you notice, he kind of ends with what he began. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. He kind of a bookend of the kingdom of heaven. And what he's doing there is he's basically giving us a cue that everything that the blessings occurred within in between were just aspects of the kingdom of God. And so everything we've read about were, were benefits or blessings of the kingdom of God. And he, he kind of ties that that loop shut here with this statement. And it says, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake. In other words, those that experience opposition at the insistence of pursuing Jesus, at the insistence of pursuing Christ's likeness and his ways in this world, in a world that has fallen, such opposition should be expected and actually should be happening. The pursuit of righteousness is meant to set off those who oppose God, to cause tensions. But of course, going back to the previous beatitude, we are the peacemakers. Even when it causes tensions, we know we're blessed and that we try to bring peace to the tension. Not always successful, but we do. We try. It's a part of our way as those who have trusted Jesus. Now, we read through this, and it does go on and speak a little bit more about those who are persecuted, and you can read it later if you'd like. Um, but I want to say this. Uh, last week's message from Pastor Kim, if you were here, um, it was a message in this series and spoke about the disciples with Jesus. And these are disciples that followed Jesus, who by all external um, uh, ways of telling seem to love their, 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 their Savior. Or they're maybe not viewing him as their Savior, at least the one that they followed, their rabbi, their teacher. Um, but yet, I don't know if you caught this if you were here, but did you hear Pastor Kim Read the passage where it says they were still hardened in hearts. Did you catch that last week? Sometimes things uh, these days catch me in a way that they haven't caught me before. I don't know that I've ever really caught that in a way that struck me like it struck me last week. I mean, these are guys, think about this. They bought into Jesus. I mean, these are not guys who are who are necessarily just expecting Jesus to fail them. They bought into him. They followed him across the Judean countryside. They confessed him as the Christ, even proclaimed his message for him. They went out as missionaries for him along the way, but still, they had hardened hearts. Hardened hearts, Scripture says. Does that cause anyone else to pause and almost, almost be a little terrified? makes me wonder, how soft or hard is my heart? <laughs> I mean, really? I mean, these are guys who, who crossed the T's, dotted the I's, and, and walked the walk and all that stuff. And they had hardened hearts. And they continue to have hardened hearts, by the way. All the way through the end, all the way through the, the beginning of the resurrection of Jesus. It says... In the scripture, their hearts were hard and slow. Do you ever feel that way? That your heart's hard, it's slow? Slow to believe, slow 
Do you feel that way a lot? Do you feel that way a lot? The answer is yes. I'm willing to bet that more than a few of the Beatitudes we just read sounded either almost foreign or simply impossible to live out. Frustratingly impossible to live out. But take hope. Take hope. Those same disciples with hardened hearts, slow hearts, would eventually have softened and quickened and receptive hearts. Hearts that became able to mirror these beatitudes we just read through. And that's why it's important to take note of when and how this transformation began to take effect in most all of those early disciples. It began after the resurrection of Jesus and for at least two people on the road to Emmaus. Turn to Luke 24. Luke 24. We won't spend much time here, but the time we spend here is going to be really important. Starting in verse 13. um, It says, That very day, two of them, two disciples, one of which will remain unnamed that we don't know their name, two, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. And and what they're talking about is the trial, um, the the beatings, and and the crucifixion, and subsequent burial of Jesus. All those things that happened surrounding Jesus. They were talking, discussing together. Jesus himself drew near. See, Jesus is resurrected now. And, And he drew near in his resurrected state. And he went with them, started walking with them, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he, Jesus, said to them, what is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, named Cleopas, answered Jesus, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? (laughs) That's ironic. He's saying that to Jesus, right? But what does he know? He doesn't recognize him. And he said to them, meaning Jesus, he said to them, what things? What things are you referring to? And they said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who is a prophet, mighty indeed in word before God and all the people, and how all of our chief priests and our rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things have happened. And moreover, some of the women of our company have amazed us. They were at the tomb of Jesus early in this morning, and and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. The implication they're making is to add insult to injury. Now people are pretending like he's alive. Opening the wound. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found that it it was just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And then Jesus said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart. Another way of saying those who are still hardened. 
slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going farther. But they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is, it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. And so he went in on, in on in to stay with them. And when he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And at that moment, their eyes were opened. Their eyes were opened. And they recognized him. And he vanished from their sight. That just seems woefully cruel, doesn't it? But he vanished from their sight. Most commentators say the point was that they see the resurrected Christ, and now that they had, they had no need for him to be physically with them at this point. Speculation, but we don't really know, to be honest. They recognized him, and he vanished from their sight, and they said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures. Powerful statement. Powerful statement. We'll be back at it in a minute. And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem and they found the 11 disciples, the original disciples and those who were with them gathered together saying, the Lord has risen and he has appeared to Simon. So they're already telling the story that these two are going to go back and tell them. So they added to the story saying what had happened on that road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. There's a lot there. A lot of fantastical elements, a lot of miraculous elements. The power of God is on display. All important things, but not things we're going to focus on. I just want you to consider the simplicity of what's there. The simplicity of what is there. And by the way, this isn't the only passage where we could do this. This is just one that tells a really good aspect to the narrative of, of two people who are transitioning from hardened to soft hearts. And the simplicity of what we see here in other passages is this. What is important, what is key to the transition from a hardened heart to a softened heart is quite simply time and walking with Jesus. Time with and walking with Jesus. In the case of the physical presence of Jesus in this text, it was actually many hours on their walk with Jesus. And think of what it means for them to have walked and talked and spent time with Jesus. They talked with him. He talked with them. He listened to them. They listened to him. And possibly even more importantly in all of it was how he spoke to them in and through the recalling of the scriptures. Very informative. And not just retelling and, and reminding them of the scriptures, but, but telling them and reminding them of how to read them 
with a heart that pursues to see and hear from Jesus in the scriptures. Where is Christ in this text? On the road, he showed them. And that is what is so incredibly critical to understand in this text is that not just spending time with him, but in the simplicity of prayer, talking, listening, him talking, you listening, and all in the scope of also the scriptures playing a key part. They identified correctly that it was within the hearing of Jesus coming off the pages of the scriptures that is then that their hearts began to burn. That the hardened hearts were melting. Friends, the simplicity of rhythmic time with Jesus and hearing his revealed scriptures, his revealed words, cannot be underplayed. Spending time with Jesus daily. Hearing something of his scriptures, his revelation, his words to us daily. Being present, walking with him daily. Think about what they were bringing to this road to Emmaus. Hopefully this frees you up. They brought disappointment. They brought disbelief. They brought disillusionment, despair. Name it, they brought it. But the important thing to note was that when they became present and really began to hear Jesus and really began to hear him from the scriptures, despite not even recognizing him yet. Remember, they don't recognize him until they break bread later. Despite not recognizing him, and despite being weak in faith and hardened in heart, their hearts had begun the process of burning. I want to begin wrapping up with a question. To what degree is my daily life, your daily life, our routines, our priorities, our energies, devoted to pursuing the presence of Jesus. Let me put it this way. If you can find time in your day for Ellen, for your Netflix or Hulu binge show, for 30 minutes of NPR or whatever other radio or podcast program you choose, for scrolling through your social media channels. At first it felt like a few minutes, but then you look up and it's been an hour. If you have all the time for all that, Isn't there time in your daily rhythm to pursue the presence of Jesus? The Beatitudes are crazy 
hard, impossible looking. The veil on their difficulty lifts when you spend regular time with Jesus, though. Because it is only through constant awareness and pursuit of his presence that we even have the power to even hope to live out the Beatitudes. On my own power, I don't have it. And so last statement I want to make. Planning the time, the energies, the routines that it takes to spend time with Jesus, to be in his presence, that is your job. Not my job. I'm your pastor. Kim's your pastor. Greg's your pastor. Noah's your pastor, even though he's not technically called a pastor here yet. Let me tell you something. It is our responsibility to watch over your souls. And it is our responsibility to do some things. This is not one of them. It is your responsibility to alter your routines, to change the way you live your life so that you can be in the presence of God. Don't come to worship and say, I got nothing out of it when you spent no presence with Jesus all week. There's a reason. There's a direct line of connection as to why you did not. It begins with the presence of Jesus and walking with Jesus daily, friends. That's your part. What's our part? Well, if I'm reading my Bible right, it's to equip you to succeed. Equip you to succeed. That is where your church and your pastors can help. And as I promised, today flows into tonight. That is where your pastors can help. More on that later.